You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Probably one of the best books I have ever read about influence, persuasion, and just understanding the dynamics and games that people play with each other and even play in terms of their own lives. So excited to introduce this book via the podcast. It's called The Power Bible. It's by my good friends, Bill Petit and Brendan Lemon. You probably remember them. They've been on the podcast before, but we get into the nuts and bolts of frame control. And just so you know, these guys are experts. They've been lawyers, salesmen, dating coaches, comedians, and they've studied persuasion and motivation and the science of it and their experience of it from so many different angles. Uh, the science of it they call frame control. The book, The Power Bible, which is for sale now, is about their own personal experiences with frame control. We talk about it right here. I love that he's like, you don't need to see my face. And then it's like a picture of Jay. Got <laughs> <laughs> to see my whole body. Yeah. Look at, dude, and look he's at giving me a... He's giving me like a smolder. <laughs> look at this photo. Jay, you have such a <laughs> triumphant jawline. Look at that picture, yeah. It looks like you're coming out with a rap album and it, you were really mad that nobody took you seriously for being Asian. Like that... <laughs> I, would sw- I would swipe right on that Asian. Oh, dude, you guys invented rap... At- I, you forget, I've heard Chinese people speak Chinese, bro. That shit is just rap, bro. <laughs> well, it's kind, of, it's kind of like all hip-hop culture, though. Asians end up doing it better. Yo, a million percent. I mean, well, how rap, can you compete, break dude? dancing, beatboxing, like everything. Everything. There's like billions of them. There's yeah. literally billions of them. So statistically, the anomalies have to be higher. So it's right. like, statistically speaking... The best rapper in the world is probably Chinese because there are just more Chinese people we than any other given group of people. A million percent. <laughs> this is what's funny, though, is basketball is so important to Chinese people and they still aren't great. Like, that's it. It's just like, <laughs> whole, if, you, if you look at, like, you hear Yao Ming's story, they basically put him in a concentration camp for basketball, gave him growth hormones. And like his foot broke, and he's like not even a top 100 player. That's a chat. You can't beat Chinese manufacturing, dude. Is that dude, true? They, they manufactured themselves a great NBA player. They, they, <laughs> they gave him growth hormones? I, I didn't know that. Yep. Yep. So wait, Yao Ming was born and he was tall. Like, what was he, like seven feet tall by the time sixth grade or it, something? It, it was something like he was like six, six or six, seven. And then they gave him like some sort of concoction that he doesn't know what it is, but it was probably definitely GH. And then, um, and then yeah, and then he, but he had that soft touch, you know? Um, and he was a very skillful player, but you think about it. Basketball is super important to Chinese culture. It's only a matter of time until they get better too. I mean, I, I think China's going to take over the world. Talk about frame control. 
frame control. China, dude. China setting the, the global frame, dude. Dude, I mean, they are buying votes in Africa. No issue, bro. Like, I'm telling, dude. I don't know why the United States didn't think of this sooner, man. African votes in the UN, dude. It's, America is just too decadent. I mean, also in in Africa, like China is basically. I don't know why the U.S. didn't do this either. China is rebuilding all of their infrastructure, and they're all and and whether this is bad or good, they're all going to be in debt to China. And the U.S. kind of stayed out of it. it. The United States has kind of taken an approach with Africa, like they don't want to do business with Africa; they want to exploit, right? And so they exploit via charities, NGOs. China's actually like, we'll do business with Africa. Africa is China's China, right? That's where the manufacturing is in China. So they, they have no qualms with building and investing up, just like it's a new form of mercantilism. And so um, I think it's going to be one of the best things to happen for Africa, even though some of these deals aren't great. It's going to educate a lot of people. It's going to get people skilled labor rather than um, getting them hooked on donation and charity. And um, yeah, we'll end up seeing a new coalition form in the East. Probably in 2020. 2020 is going to last for 10 years. So <laughs> we just got to stuff every bad thing into 2020 and then we'll see what happens. Like it does feel like we've entered like a time dilation because the I just heard on on the Daily, on the New York Times, somebody mentioned they were like, well, you remember they were like cancel culture was really a, like Barack Obama talked about cancel culture. And that was some time ago. And then they were like, actually, it wasn't. I just looked it up. It was in August of last year. Like it yeah. wasn't, it was a year ago. It feels like that was five years ago because of everything that's going on. Yeah. Like, like if I look at the calendar, technically Bill and I were in the Netherlands, I don't know, like four five months ago, but that was literally, that was literally like before my bar mitzvah or something like that was, <laughs> I was like a child then. Now, now I've grown up in this harsh, brutal world. There are so many impossible things that happen. Like if I was a betting man, I would have lost all my money this year on everything. Like there, I, I, dude, we, we were in the Netherlands. Everything was fine. You flew home and the world closed. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like, it's like there was a, a VR game and it was all actually, it was already pretty bad. 2020 already started off like with disaster, like Australia, the entire continent was on fire. Like that's how, that was January 1st. January 3rd, we go to war, World War Three. Then there's the impeachment hearings. Uh, oh, and then coronavirus, then 50 million people filed for unemployment. Then now we're waiting for UFOs to hit. Like oh yeah, aliens are, aliens are gonna be next. Well, well they, they, they've already announced, this is how big 2020 has been. They, the government announced there, there are aliens and it isn't even news. Well, yeah. and actually, they, they even said they even said they were going to have a big meeting to discuss it. What happened to that? And nobody even cares. No one asked. Yeah, nobody, hey, nobody cares. What happened anymore. to the aliens? Like, what's going on? And meanwhile, uh, the protests started happening. Um, you know, every city is being you know rioting, looting. Uh, all this stuff's going on. Oh yeah, Chicago last night was insane. Yeah, I think what something like twenty-one people shot or killed. Oh, it was it was nuts. Those just the live streams I was watching from people I know on on Facebook was was honestly frightening. I mean, the Magnificent Mile right downtown was where a lot of that was happening. It was like right. Wait, what happened? There was a there. So there's a so I don't even know all the facts, but this is all I know so far is that there was. So by the time this podcast is released, this this you know could be totally different, but the. What I understand is that there was a, a guy who was a suspect the police were going after. When the police like saw this guy that fit the description, 
This guy started running away. He started firing on the police. So the police returned fire and, sh and killed him. And then later that day, this was yesterday, all these looters started running around the city of Chicago, smashing like the Tesla dealership in River North, like, basically everywhere in River North. Yeah, and there was a I, there was some mall. I was I saw a video of some mall where it's just like Water car, Tower Plaza. Yeah, car after car, truck after truck. People were just pulling up, piling out, loading up, going back to the truck and driving off. Like it was yeah. a free for all. Like Bill's Bill's favorite Zara basically <laughs> was getting like hit in downtown Chicago. Here and here's the thing, and this is this has to do with frame control. There is the message that this is caused because of BLM and defunded police narratives when it was actually the failure of our government to give people money while not having them be able to work and that people are more desperate now than ever. Do you think what randomly now we're having rioting and looting correlate when government has failed again, yet they're I, just going to try to put that same burden on people fighting for rights, which has nothing to do with it. People are like, oh, this is defund the police, but no police has been defunded yet. Not at all. And if anything, that is just police choosing not to work. That's all that's happening. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like if you, if you tell 100 million people to stay home and a lot of those people are going to end up hungry and scared and, you know, dealing with their families in ways that they're not used to. And, that, you know, then the, the government is, tells people to stay home. No stimulus is passed. There's all this partisan politics where nothing happens. You can't. And then, and then they say it's like bailing out or not giving incentives to work. And, and it's just ridiculous. You already told these people to stay home. Now you're telling them to go broke and not feed their families. Of course, this is going to happen. Of course, it's going to happen all over the country. Like, and I don't know. I, don't, I, don't, I actually don't think, I don't know. It's hard to say because if you say there shouldn't be a lockdown, then more people would have died. That's bad also. And, you know, I don't know what the answer is, but it's definitely not what they did. I mean, I mean, the answer was for us to stay close for three more weeks, <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. The answer <laughs> was, yeah, the answer was just for everybody to chill for three more weeks. And, or, or, and, or to chill for three weeks in the beginning and like no essential workers, just everybody stay home. Not like, okay, all the poor people are allowed to go out and deliver food. Everybody just needs to stay <laughs> home. And then it would have been gone. I mean, France... Europe is completely back to normal. And really, if it wasn't for fundamentalist ideologies, um, like in Russia, Brazil, and in America, the world would be rid of coronavirus. That's everywhere else. Everything, the numbers are completely under control. We're the only ones holding this up. Dave Chappelle was really prophetic when he said that this is the age of spin. And it is so hard for anybody to get a kind of a, a full picture of what's going on. I think that's one of the biggest things about 2020 is the people who are dispensing information. Who, who do you trust? Right. Yeah. And based on who do you trust, you're getting a vastly different image of what the world is like. I mean, depending on who you talk to, either Facebook is filtering information to support a liberal agenda and destroying conservative viewpoints, or Facebook is a pushing a conservative agenda actively and promoting those messages in your newsfeed. It's like, it's, it's, all, it's like whoever you ask, it's like a completely 180 degree different concept. This is- Yeah, and I, and I think it's gotten worse. And look, this is gonna definitely segue to the power Bible and frame control. And by the way, we have Bill Petit and Brendan Lemon on the podcast to talk about 
Persuasion, Frame Control, and their new book, The Power Bible. But this, and this is all interesting because I think it's, have you guys noticed, I think it's gotten worse because it used to be the case, oh, if, so, if an event happened and I wanted information about it, I could go to a news outlet and even if it was biased, I would at least be able to get a list of the facts that happened and then the interpretation. Now I find I'm only getting the interpretation. I'm not even getting the facts of what happened. And I'll just give you one quick example. Like this weekend, you know, we were just talking about um, what government's ability to give people money in these lockdowns. Well, this weekend, you know, um, Trump signed these executive orders to uh, extend unemployment, avoid, help people avoid evictions, help people pay back student loans, get rid of a payroll tax cut. And I was thinking to myself, I don't understand what they, they're just saying these orders that he did on the news. I don't understand what they actually were and how they legally work because, you know, there's nuances when a president makes a law versus when a Congress makes a law. So I desperately wanted to look up what the actual facts were. And there were no, there was no news source that contained the actual facts. I had to find somewhere on a government website what the actual executive orders were that were signed. And then I, I had to think about them and then I had some questions. There were no answers to any of my questions on the internet. So these, this was arguably the most important news event of the weekend. There was no place that was giving the news. It was ju- it's now we're, we live 100% now in the age of spin. It's only spin. There's no facts underneath. Yeah, and you've had to become, you and everybody else has had to become their own professional journalist to try to just touch bottom because it's just, it's a completely disarming environment. Yeah. And I would say not, not necessarily that I'm qualified, but most people are not qualified to do that. So for instance, most people do not know the U S constitution or what things are within the purvey of the president versus, uh, uh, the purvey of Congress. Like you can't just write an executive order saying, Oh, no one has to pay their rent. Like there's no, Congress can't even make that law. Like you have to know how these things work. Like, are you know, you, are you saying me the landlords are allowed to go broke, but not the renters? Like, what is what are the actual laws here? And then and then it turns out there are constitutional issues. Like, you can't put someone out of business without due process. And there's there's all sorts of issues, none of which were addressed in this incredibly important news that happened this weekend. It was just yeah, this is like, fascinating. I, I want to make this this point real quick, which is, this is fascinating because a philosopher that Bill and I both like named Jean Baudrillard talked about this, this, this exact problem. He was writing, he wrote a book, Simulacrum and Simulation, which the uh, matrix is based off of. Maybe you guys are familiar with him, but he, he talked about the problem of proliferation, which is the problems of the pre-modern era were typically problems of of low resource. So it was like, you didn't have enough food. You didn't have enough information. You never knew what things were happening or what weren't happening because there was just simply no way to go get that information. But the problem today is the opposite, which is there's such a tremendous, you know, on a today, just today, there will be more information created and captured uh, in terms of content than there was at all in the history of the planet created by human beings until the year 2000. Like that's just today. And so you have to sift through this and, and that, that's become the issue. It's actually relevant. It's interesting because it is actually kind of relevant also to frame control, which is why people revert to these like ideological positions and really rigid, solid frames because trying to have a dynamic frame moving through a world that is 
constantly assaulting you with disconfirming information left and right is really challenging to do. To the information thing, the two places you can get to anybody listening, good information that is not opinion is Reuters and the Associated Press. Reuters is where these news companies buy their news from. So they're not leaning any particular way. That's how you get the facts. Um, BBC also works great. There are charts that judge the um, veracity of the news stations and press and their amount of bias. I suggest you look them up and then compare them with where you're getting your news to keep that in mind whenever you're taking in information because it is very easy. And um, James and I had a conversation about how hard it is to get a license to cut hair in this country and this country being America, but you do not need a license to call yourself a journalist. And that is having terrible, terrible consequences right now because there is no accreditation process, right? And that doesn't, um, that affects the quality of the information that we take in. I, I totally agree. And, and, and to both your guys' point, this is actually, this, this excess of information as opposed to an excess of resources has so many ramifications in society. But one of these things is that um, an important skill that is needed to survive in this new era, and by new era, I mean post-2020. We're not going back to normal. We're not going back to what people are calling a new normal. This is really a, a great reset. And you're going to need the skill that you guys write about in the Power Bible, the skill of frame control. Because A, how do you sift through this information and understand the frames of all the people trying to force their opinion onto you? Second, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's at a job, whether it's in a, a high stakes situation, whether it's uh, you know in a negotiation or a sales or even on a, a comedian on the stage, you have to be able to, in many cases, control the frame, or as Bill, you've often told me, the frame's going to be controlled uh, over you. So why don't you guys describe frame control and the, and the power Bible, and then and we'll get into it. This was, this was the perfect segue. <laughs> Boom. Um, so put most simply, um, frame control is the art of controlling perception. And this happens within conversation. It happens um, anytime you're speaking with anybody. It happens when you're taking in media. All of these things are controlling your perception or trying to control your perception. And frame control is garnering the ability to resist the temptation to buy into other frames that are trying to um, influence your decisions and to be aware of where you can assert your frame to control other people's perception on something because that's incredibly important. Give like a, a personal situation. Like there's, there's work and relationships. I think the biggest one, the one that continued to come up when we were writing the book was, and you know, at work, you have to, you have to manage your perception in, as, in addition to doing your work. Like I just had a, actually just had a conversation with my dad about this yesterday. He, um, he had a very successful career, my dad, um, in uh, environmental uh, health and human services for, for uh, a major, I shouldn't say the name of the company, for, for a very big major um, oil spill company, pharmaceutical <laughs> company. And my dad was very effective. He would never have made it to such a high position at a pharmaceutical company doing the job that he did if he wasn't effective at his job. But as soon as he started working for this consulting firm, there were two people who became really threatened by him on the consulting firm's team. And none of the projects that my dad wanted the firm to take and ever ended up getting 
picked up by the firm. And it was basically because he was essentially sabotaged by two other people. So it's, it's weird because everybody has to deal with this stuff in their daily lives. And if my dad had uh, managed that, those relationships differently, if he was able to navigate the frames that were you know, imposed on him when he entered the consulting firm, that story might've turned out differently. So what, what could he have done? So how was frame used on him and how, what could he have done? Well, so a lot of what, a lot of the projects that were not taken by the consulting company basically were, were not taken because the brand perception, like we don't want to take these projects because these are not our core clients, even though this might be like good, uh, good projects for the firm to take. And a big part of this could have easily been done by him by winning over the people who he would have were threatened by him to begin with. And then talking, reframing the concept of the brand instead of being like, we're about helping mining companies or whatever it was they were supposed to do. And instead, we're in the business of environmental health and human services to whoever we need to have that done to. Or it, it, this, this conversation about what the brand could have been could have been expanded by him pretty, pretty early. And, and he, honestly, he just didn't do it. I was talking to him about it the other day. I mean, the, there, but this thing occurs. It's not just in terms of companies. It's like there's a lot of frames that are in that equation, like the frames of the people who he had, uh, who were threatened by him. He could have changed. He could have tried to change the perception of the company um, in terms of the work that they were trying to get done. I mean, there's a lot of different places for him to have gone and sort of changed these sorts, the, the, the frames that were around him. And, and he could have done it using these techniques in your book. And this, this leads to a bigger question about frame control as opposed to what many people call persuasion. But what's another example? Like, like Bill, what's a personal example? What's a relationship example? A relationship example, for example, is let's say you're in a fight with your significant other and you are bringing up something that's actually a very reasonable point. Maybe they constantly leave the bathroom and the room a mess. And you say, hey, like you brought this up and you're like, hey, you need to clean up the room. I don't like how I feel like this. And they bring up a litany of other things that you didn't do. Well, you didn't thank me for the date we went on. You didn't, um, you, you haven't gone and walked in a while. And all these are things, they berate you with 20 different things that you're doing wrong all at once. And you feel reflexively that you want to defend yourself. And you start defending yourself to all these varying little things that they bring up. That is you not controlling the frame. That is them stealing the frame because now you're in reaction to them. Now you are on the defensive to a bunch of things that had nothing to do with your initial proposition. And this is something that happens to a lot of us. And what you would, what is better to do in that situation is we're not talking about those things right now. I'm talking about the room is a mess. The bathroom's not clean. I don't like how this feels whenever it's this going on. If you want to talk about these other things, I'd be happy to read a letter by you or at a different time but these are the things I need to change. Let's say they keep going and they keep trying to bring, now they start getting mad, right? They, they start raising their voice, raising their voice. When people raise their voice at you, they are, um, being loud comes with the implicit threat of violence, right? And they're trying to make your frame capitulate. You know, whenever someone gets aggressive with you and you feel the pressure on you and you, you feel you want to get small or whatever, you be, frame control is being aware they are trying to be loud right now to do this. It's like, don't raise your voice. Don't raise your voice. And you only have to repeat the same thing over and over again. If they continue to do this, then you just leave the conversation because you don't want to, and you do not want to have a discussion not on your terms. A lot of what we get in life is about getting conversations to happen on our terms. And these things- Wait, wait, I want to understand what you just said. So you're saying when we, 
in general, when we have frame control, that's we're, we're better able to get the things we want in life because we understand what's going on in these, in these battlefields of conversation or at the workplace or whatever. We have a more sense of uh, zooming out and seeing the kind of lines of power that are going back and forth. And so we're able to kind of use these techniques that we're about to talk about to essentially get what we want, not in a uh, manipulative way, but just, you know, so that you, you, so that you're not, you know, sucked into frames that you don't want to be in. A million percent. Well, you don't want to be living somebody else's idea of your life, right? And one of the best examples of this, and you guys are going to laugh, one of the best people at frame control and a lot of what we're teaching. Kanye West. No, not, not, <laughs> I mean, Kanye West could, could take to read the Power Bible. Um, even though he's massively successful, I love Kanye, but Jeffrey Epstein. And, oh, wow, I bring up Jeffrey Epstein. It's so, so taboo. But Where's you Tim have Dillon? To ask, what? We got to get Tim Dillon on the podcast now. <laughs> you have to ask yourself, how did this man, who is from a middle-class background, who had no college degree, end up ascending into this aristocracy? Now, there might have been whatever way, he still got connected with these people. And he still got opportunities from these people. And he was even confronted about how he had lied about the credentials that he had, and yet he still retained the job. And that is because he constantly and always understood that the gift of gab could make up the distance for anything you lack in your history or in your past. And so a lot of the time, frame control even look, um, works at seeing hierarchies, seeing what people need in a certain place, seeing who influences what. When you know how an organization works, when you know where the power is, you can treat people appropriately. A lot of times, I knew, Brendan and I both did this in stand-up. There's a, a tendency when you do stand-up to think that open mic hosts have a lot of power because you're, they're, they're ahead of you. <laughs> and the reality is they have absolutely no power, right? But you will spend a lot of time kissing up to people who don't have power if you don't understand how power operates. Right. And frame control teaches you to think, how much power does this one individual have in this circumstance? What are the limits of their power? Who has bestowed power upon them? I think that the I, I was thinking of another personal example is like in my in my personal life. And I think a lot of people right now, especially in relationships, are dealing with how they're everybody's locked on a submarine with their significant other right now. Like everybody is is caught in like a tiny situation and and everything that you do is like suddenly you know, you're, you're constantly around your partner and people haven't had to be exposed to this sort of thing when they go out like normally. And a recent discussion that I've been having with my partner basically has been how much out to eat are we going to try to go versus not like going out. And so it's funny because I, Gloria and I just had this conversation a while ago where we, we finally like had to decide exactly what this was going to look like. But the conversation was so odd because it was like, there were so many other things moving around. And the, remember what, but you know how when we talk about frame and frame controls, frame basically means the the context of the information as it's presented. So, is it that we are going out uh, and we don't want to because we're being exposed to potentially the coronavirus, or do we want to do it because we value our relationship more than the coronavirus, or do we like how, what are all of these things that we're like basically judging? And so, what I had to, I didn't, I didn't want, I don't want to go out. I want to save money, man. That's like. <laughs> where I am right now. I don't want to go spend some tacos and maybe get sick and lose a month of work or like whatever I'm going to, whatever I'm going to do. And so uh, in order to win that conversation, basically, I had to find out what this frame, I had to set what this was going to be about. Because if this is about how 
it's frustrating for us to be at home a lot and it's about having dinner together, then why don't I just make dinner and we can do like picnics three days a week versus let's just go out to dinner. Um, there's a lot of, I mean, this is like, people have these arguments all the time, but like they need to decide, you need to set the frame of like, what is this conversation about and who is going to get what in this negotiation? Uh, because this is, it's a conversation that matters. You know what I mean? You're going to spend money. Maybe you're going to get sick. I mean, these are all considerations that we're moving around, uh, you know, this, this recent negotiation we had. And I, I think I was able to kind of navigate that basically because I was able to tease out sort of what, what were the interests that my partner had in wanting to go out? What were my interests? And what was this actually about? Like, what is this conversation actually about? Tends to be something that we focus on a lot in the book because you can be in the wrong conversation. You know, there's, there's, you've said this yourself, James, there's the uh, stated reason. And then there's like the, the, the real reason, like people will say they want something. And then what they really want is something that's underneath page that. 59 so what of my, the power Bible. What did you say that again? Page 59 of the power Bible is where I said it. <laughs> That's exactly where I you guys said it. Go, go, yeah, go open up your copy of the book. James is right. We cite James directly in the book because it's good. It, it works. 100% it, it, it works. Yeah, it, and it, one of the things is, is that you're constantly, when you're aware of frame control, searching for the underlying incentives. And I think incentive shapes people's actions a lot more than other things that you're thinking about. I like to look at interactions as like a pie chart, right? A lot of times people think people do something for one reason, and that's usually never the case. So you want to, yeah, what's the main reason someone might want something, but you want to get in the process of listing what else could it be? What else could it be? And one of the things we recommend in the book is when you're getting into a place where you're getting ready to negotiate with someone or you're getting ready to have a conversation that might be difficult, we suggest having deep empathy, not just thinking about their point of view as in the facts that they might have, but from your perspective, we want you to become them what their history was, who they're influenced by, what their ideology is, right? All of these things are going to help you, number one, gain deep empathy for their argument, see how they could be right, but then build your argument on top of that. And the, um, it's called also steel manning. So when you can represent somebody's argument in the best way possible, rather than straw manning somebody's argument, number one, they will feel seen, understood, but they will also let down their guard. We call it Trojan horsing, right? So they feel like, oh, you're really agreeing with me. And you're actually, I feel seen. But then when you dismantle it from the inside, there's really no coming back because they let down their guard. And so there's a lot of these things that you can do. And a lot of mistakes that people make is they don't think enough about the other person's position. Then they'll get into the discussion, have a really great point brought up, and they'll be blindsided by that. They're like, oh, that's a really great point. The last thing you're thinking about is their perspective. You end up leave, leaving representing them and arguing for their case within the middle of the argument. And this is especially common with people who are empathetic, right? People who are deeply empathetic, you're just like, oh, I see how that could be right. Uh, Brendan and I joke about this all the time where it's like, we're not frame master, like I was out the womb, everybody bends to me kind of people. The reason we were able to write this book in such detail is we were writing it from the perspective of empaths who had to construct this because we're constantly looking to please other people. And you have to be aware of this because a lot of times you'll feel the impulse to actually always argue for the other person. So you have to protect yourself from your own impulses and hold, your, yep. hold the frame with yourself. There's two things I guess I want to say. One is that I think Bill and I ended up having to kind of, you know, this is, I've said this before, I think on the last time I was on, your, on the podcast, James, is that this is the book that I wish that I had been given when I, you know, realized 
that I was very, I was not assertive enough to try to basically get the things that I wanted in, in, out, of, out of life and in interactions with other people. And it's because they say there's, there's a handful of different coping strategies that people have. There's assertiveness, aggression, avoidance, um, freezing, which I guess is also kind of avoidance. And then finally, accommodation. I think Bill and I default to accommodation with other people. But if you do that, you're always going to capitulate and give somebody else what, what they want. It's very difficult to get what you want. And in order to hold that frame, in order to explore it, we've basically been on this like whole journey to try to figure it out. And this is kind of the culmination of a lot of that work. I want to interrupt right there just because all of these situations really kind of uh, encapsulate a lot of what you write about, which is that this is why I like what you guys wrote and, and your ideas of frame control versus kind of these, there's all these books about persuasion and influence and all these academic ideas about, you know, and this, this, boils, this goes even down to like, you know, the dating pickup scene or, you know, marketing influence or, you know, how to win a negotiation sort of books. And a lot of this is based on academic theory and it may or may not work. And it's like very tactical, very technique driven. There's a lot of techniques in what you have, but I like that there's a whole foundation that starts with, you know, self-awareness, self-confidence, being able to figure out what the games are that are happening in front of you and only then kind of using these techniques. So for instance, Bill, in that, in that example you described where um, you're upset about one thing and the other person brings up five other things and then you start defending yourself, uh, in that situation, you or the person um, uh, is not aware that the frame is being changed. You, you, are, you are entering the conversation, bringing up one context. Hey, the room is messy. This makes me feel a certain way. And then the context got slightly shifted and you got sucked into it by defending yourself. And now you're not going to feel good. It's going to turn into an argument that has nothing to do with anything. And because you didn't have either self-awareness or self-confidence or some way of looking at the game that was being played, nobody really is going to end up with a good outcome. It's not like you're trying to win over the other person. Nobody ends up winning in a situation like that. And, and Brendan, in your example with your dad, uh, because he didn't understand the frame he was in in his conversations, probably hundreds of conversations with his coworkers and with the owner of the company, he wasn't able to kind of navigate the hierarchy there. A, a hierarchy has its own frame. He wasn't able to kind of use frame use frame control on that hierarchy and ended up probably lower on that hierarchy than he could have been. And, and by not understanding these techniques ranging from self-awareness, self-confidence, uh, and so on to the actual tactical techniques, you end up being either at the bottom of the hierarchy or having an argument with your partner or whatever. And like, and, and Bill, in that example you gave when the, the person was getting angry and you know, again, it's like, that's, that's, could that be another way that they're trying to get framed so that it's, it becomes about uh, their emotional state or, uh, and it's not as if you want to be uncaring and impassive. You know, you mentioned in the book, a person's uh, emotions are, are up to them, but, but also at the same time, there's a variety of things you can do. I'm borrowing from techniques in the book, but you could like zoom out at that point and say, listen, this is about really having a better and better relationship. It's not about any one thing. You know, we want to be able to communicate better. Blah, blah. Or you could have um, uh, 
did the uh, technique you were calling labeling in the book, which is to say, hey, you know, um, the reason I fell in love with you in the first place is that we were always so great at uh, communicating through these situations. Whether or not it was true, when you, when you, when you, uh, label them and when you shape them in that way, they're going to start to go along with that. Hey, uh, Bill thinks I'm the type of person who X, Y, and Z. And the same with um, your, your dad, Brendan. He could have said, uh, you know, uh, to his coworkers, I'm so glad I joined this company. You guys are the, the type of people who always think in the next generation of what we're going to need. And, you know, that starts to gear towards the, the frame of what he wanted. Exactly. There you go. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. 
immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. One of the things that I love about this is like you actually, like every time we've talked about this, I'm like, James is really really has read the shit out of this book, man. Like it's so, several I, I times, it. three times though. This is the third time through or, or more than that. Cause I read earlier drafts. I, I really, I, yeah. And I really, I really dig it because these are such good examples. Like one of the things that we, one of the things that I think we were both frustrated at as people who are approaching this as empaths uh, was the lack of any writing around how, emotions, your own emotions and your own thoughts and beliefs affect your frame and the frame that you bring into a conversation. Because, you know, one of the things we talk about in the book is like, look, the bottom of every social hierarchy is littered with people who can't, they cannot hold frame. And, and as a result, like, unless you choose your character, the world will choose one for you. That is so important. The bottom of every hierarchy is littered by people who couldn't uh, choose their frame not littered by the less talented or the less skilled, although that might be the case, but we know many hierarchies where the less talented and less skilled are actually at the top of the hierarchy. Well, think about this though. There are, there are so many stories and you know, one is NWA was like screwed by their producer. They had a ton of talent. Now, a lot of those guys with the exception, I guess, of Eze because he passed away, but those guys have all gone on to be successful people elsewhere. But there are plenty of stories of, of bands or successful people who have very valuable skills, the market values, who are outframed by other people and then taken advantage of. That happens, that happens a lot. And it's basically because the people who have those skills and value, you know, those resources or, or what's inside of them don't have the actual uh, techniques or understanding to create a foundation to defend and then navigate the world shepherding those resources to benefit their life versus being exploited by someone else. Right. And you, and we, we would like to think everything's a meritocracy, but very few things are like you point out in the book, the MMA is meritocracy. Cause if I beat you up, um, I move on and you don't, but in, in almost every other situation in life, it's not really a meritocracy. We would like to think it is, and maybe it partially is, but whether it's the art world, the comedy world, the legal world, the, the business world, the sales world, the, the investing world, there's very little meritocracy. Meritocracy is pretty close to a myth and it's perpetuated by people in power to justify why they are powerful um, a lot of times. 
just to be, I just want to steel man Bill's point here because we point this out in the book that like a lot of the beliefs that are, you know, it's not so much what is said, but who says what, but it's also not so much what is believed, but what must be believed in order to support someone who's in their position in the hierarchy. Like the, 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 the creation of those beliefs is, is spontaneous to people who are within this hierarchy. So I just want to steal man Bill's point here because I think it's really, it's really important to understand that like meritocracy is talked about uh, and believed in by people who have succeeded because it justifies their success. And, and it might be true. That's the other thing is it might actually be true for some of them. And, 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 but it's important to define hierarchy because this is important for everyone listening to this. A hierarchy is in any job or corporation from the janitor to the CEO. That's a hierarchy. A hierarchy is in acting, you know, in, the, in Hollywood, who gets paid zero or doesn't get any jobs and who gets paid 20 million a picture. Everybody in between is in the hierarchy. A hierarchy is in, you know, academia. Whoever is getting the papers published and is being cited the most, maybe they have the best ideas or maybe they just have the most charismatic personality or frame. In politics, it's certainly a hierarchy. Were any of the, you know, primary candidates in, you know, in any election ever, we don't even really know what they think. We know what their pollsters think and we know their ability to express what their pollsters think, but we don't necessarily know what they think or, or whether they're competent or whatever. So, so a lot of it is about what they can convince us about their merits, whether those merits are true or not. But almost everything in life, your family is a hierarchy. Uh, mm. your, your, the, the, the carpool to work is a hierarchy. And, and, the, the, the and they're impossible club. to avoid. They're impossible to avoid because they're created spontaneously and arbitrarily, meaning that unless it's specifically, you know, like the United States government is a hierarchy. There is a, you know, the president is the chief executive. There are senators. Being a senator is more valuable than being a representative. There are different levels of government, you know, from one level to the other. And this entire thing was designed by our framers to be this kind of continuing conversation. But if that wasn't explicit, there would be another hierarchy that would exist. It's these things are created spontaneously by 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 humans. The brain is wired to do this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you want to get a visualization of a hierarchy, just think of pyramid. And there's somebody at the top of almost every pyramid, and there's people at the bottom holding up the person at the top. Um, and one of the things that I think is really important when you are going into this, and I think one of the things, and I thank you, James, for pointing this out that makes us a bit different than the scientific books or the books written by psychologists is we talk about, um, we have the five pillars of inner frame and we talk about um, self-respect, which we define as basically the cultivation of self-authority. So a lot of times when we think of authority, we think of it being somebody else having authority over us, but there is actually our ability to have authority over ourselves. For example, David Goggins has a massive amount of self-authority because he can tell himself to run 200 miles at one go. I, there, there, I do not have the constitution. I do not respect myself enough to listen to the command to tell myself to continue to do that. And you only gain this by continuously ending in a virtuous cycle of doing an action that is good for you, getting more self-respect, which allows you to basically like credit, withdraw more action from your self-authority, but it can also work in a downward trajectory. That's why it's so hard for addicts to quit because being an addict annihilates your self-respect and it goes down and down and pretty soon you're doing things you would have never thought you would have done. 
and so up no self-trust yeah you you're watching yourself betray your own your own internal voice being like i should do this xyz and then not doing it which is why it it undermines you have no trust and implicitly don't respect your own internal voice this is really important and it's not just that david goggins runs 200 miles it's that he is every day what he really is exercising is his ability to go beyond what he thought he could do. He, he goes beyond whatever point was too painful for him. And so like when I, so David Goggins has been on the podcast. I can't even imagine going up to David Goggins and saying, you know what? You're a dick because he would just like, it would all be almost as if like the word wouldn't even get into his atmosphere. Like, I don't even know what would happen. It wouldn't be like he would push me away or anything. He would just like, I don't can't even imagine he would hear it. Like it would, he'd be yeah, so far this, above that. We talk that. about this in the book, which is like when you have, you know, when you have a, when you, when you're, you have to have a self perception that lands somewhere. And it isn't, it is not, you know, with the mistake that a lot of other books that, and, and people who talk about this make is that they say, okay, you just got to respect yourself. So now you've decided to respect yourself. Now you do. Well, you don't, you have to earn this stuff. Yep. Yeah, by a, with actions, not thoughts. You can't think your way to self-respect. A million percent. It, it is earned and it comes from not lying and telling the truth when it's difficult. When you see somebody lie, it decimates your trust in them, everything. And when we watch ourselves lie, the underlying watcher, it annihilates our ability to trust ourselves. And so when people have self-respect, number one, they have a great ability a natural ability to say no to things because self-respect is kind of cultivated through denial, um, denial of other opportunities, denial of wanting to do things that might not be good for you, denial of just, just the urge to stop, right? And so having a strong frame means having clear boundaries, which means having the ability to say no. And a lot of people don't have the ability to say no. Saying no is actually one of the most difficult things because we're conditioned to constantly say yes when asked of things to do. And so when you build that up and you kind of create that space for yourself, especially if it's in a positive direction, you're going to get a naturally stronger frame. The other thing, the second pillar we have is self-acceptance. Now, self-acceptance and self-respect sound a lot alike, but let's say this, self-respect has to do with you as an individual. It has to do with the generalized anxiety you might feel when you wake up in the morning and you're like, man, I'm fucking up my life, like this or that. When you respect yourself, you just feel that, it's not even like arrogance, it's just like, man, I'm really killing it today. Like I'll call Brendan and he's on a seven mile run through the woods in Michigan or whatever. <laughs> and I can, I can just hear the deep self-satisfaction in his voice, right? Because he's earned that kind of self-respect. But that doesn't mean that Brendan can't go into a situation where he doesn't, So uh, self-acceptance has to do with social inter interactions, has to do with how you are in a social setting. Now you might respect yourself a lot, but then when you're around people, you might go completely inward and you don't know what to say. There are a lot of people who don't respect themselves, but completely accept themselves. And those people are fun times at parties, right? Yeah. <laughs> those Chris, Chris Farley is like an example of a guy like this. Exactly. And, but the thing about self-acceptance is people act as if it's a binary, a single moment that you accept yourself, but that's not the case. You have to continually re-accept yourself because you're constantly getting bombarded by, with frames of how you're not enough. You're constantly going into hierarchies where you're at the bottom, just naturally, like Brendan said. So you're going to have to reteach yourself to accept yourself over and over again with narratives. And we talk about doing these things. And these two things kind of demystify parts of becoming confident. Then there is even um, the ability to not get too invested into something where um, 
basically turning things into infinite games. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Brennan? Yeah, I, I just want, but there's a couple other things that I want to say uh, here is that like, you know, so James, like we started off by, you were like, what could your dad do to, you know, solve this, this situation at this company that he was, that he was at, you know, part of what I think we have talked around, but should just mention directly is that like emotions have so much to do with the destruction of your frame or the building up of your frame. So we're talking about like self-respect, but the ability to gain self-respect doesn't have to be, you know, I mean, choose, basically it's choosing to do something and then doing it. And that can be as little as like, today, I'm going to make my bed. Everything else in my whole life can get completely screwed up today, but I'm making my bed and I know that I have control over this. And lowering the locus of control to a place where you can actually start to accumulate that and then pushing it out after you've earned the self-trust to believe hmm. that you're really going to do something. Like, just somebody That's a good way chooses, to practice like, you know, this. there's a lot of literature. Go, go ahead, James, sorry. It's a good way to practice this self-respect muscle is to just pick one thing and just start expanding it out. A, a million percent. I, I think that a big mistake that a lot of people make when they're trying to change their life, they try to change it all at once rather than build momentum. So a lot of self-respect comes from momentum. It becomes easier to run when you run the day before, right? But don't try to run 20 miles in one day because that's going to exhaust you. You're not going to be able to keep that up. When you have confidence in somebody, it isn't because they do everything. It's because they do what they say they're going to do. And the same thing goes with ourselves. So it's much better to set the bar low and, and to meet that expectation than to set the bar high and not actually reach what you wanted to do that day because that makes you not trust yourself, not trust your word as much. Uh, and Brendan, I, I interrupt what you're saying about your, your dad. Well, no. So what I was going to say is just the, the, you know, the emotions are an important part of this because a lot of frame attacks occur because they're attempting to leverage negative emotions that are, you know, I mean, look, I, I should just say this because we're about to talk, I'm, I'm about to talk about emotions, but no emotion is inherently positive or negative. Are you going to cry? Yeah, I'm going to start crying on this podcast. Brendan, 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 Brendan uses powerful frame manipulation technique and cries on James's pod, gets everybody to, to pay for his college debt. No, so the, the like emotions, emotions are, are important because it's difficult to hold, to hold a frame if you're experiencing a lot of negative emotions. And, and negative emotions, again, emotions are neither positive or negative, but for the purposes of holding frame, they can be positive or negative, meaning it's difficult for me to be hurt or um, uh, feel fear or, uh, or inferiority or any of these types of things and hold a strong frame. It's very difficult to do that. And that's actually integral to you enforcing frame in a situation that matters. So it's, you know, my dad leaves this big time company uh, where he was an executive and then he moves into this company where he's not, he's no longer a big wig executive where what he says goes. Now he, he, you know, in fact, he's, it's been a long time since he's had to maybe make a case for these kinds of things uh, of why people need to take business versus just doing what he says. And now he's experiencing maybe feelings of inferiority or fear or who knows what. I mean, I didn't get that deep into the relationship with him, but it, without actually doing the work of examining these, these emotions, it's very difficult to go into situations that matter and hold or enforce frame because a lot of what the techniques and tactics, you know, we talk about a lot of techniques and tactics in the book. There's certainly a lot of that, but if you have a strong enough frame and you've done the work, a lot of these techniques and tactics will appear spontaneously when you're in a situation that matters, when you're really negotiating or when you're dealing with somebody and trying to, trying to get a, a, an outcome that you want. 
but but you know, I want I want to bring up, and this is you you guys have both brought this up in in slightly different ways. Is that the three of us, and and also everybody listening to this, none of us truly have self respect at least a hundred percent of the time. It's a spectrum, mm-hmm. right? So so people like could be listening to this, and they're like, oh, I'm still in my cubicle. I hate my boss. Whatever you know, they're talking about something that I'm only at the beginning at. It's like, it's like you said, uh, both of you said, you might have self-respect in some situations, but not in others. And this is something also that you constantly have to practice. When you're in a new situation, you have to practice it. And even in your old situation, just depending on your mood and your emotions and world events. And, you know, I think, and, and you guys said, it's not like you came out of the womb. Um, hey, I, I'm like the best. I have so much self-respect. I'm going to just start ordering people around right now. It's like, like, like for me, I, I've encountered this recently. I've, I've, you know, moved into a different social situation. Sometimes it's hard for me to be social with a bunch of people I don't know very well. I get insecure and nervous. You guys have been to parties in my own apartment, and I'll hide in the in my bedroom because <laughs> I'm so bad at like dealing in a many to many. I'm good at like one to one or one to two, like in a podcast, and I'm good to one to many, like in a, in a speech or, or on the stage, but many to many is, uh, is very difficult for me. Like I'm at the, I'm at the bottom there and it's, it's something that constantly has to practice. It's not like we're patting ourselves on the back here. Oh, we have self-respect. Now we can start controlling the frame. It's something that has to be constantly practiced, which is why David Goggins runs every single day. Every day, because it resets. I used to wake up at three thirty in the morning to work out. That is no longer myself. I lost that. That 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 will doesn't exist anymore. I I've been wake thinking up at you've been kind of wimpy lately, so you know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, dude, a million percent. And like two weeks ago, I was eating Taco Bell every day, and I've slowly had to rein that in because. And but the thing is, I want a lot of you guys listening to notice the trends because they're subtle but they can, they say a lot and they build up to a lot over time. Look at them as, as, as a, a stock or a, a 401k. Um, you're, you're slowly just accruing in the right direction and that you have a grander narrative for your life um, that you might have a lot of respect for, but you still have to do it daily. And I think one of the things, James, that you said that was really interesting to me, I also, I, when I am in a big party setting, I like intimate conversations. I get very, a lot of energy from that. I don't like non-intimate conversations. I don't thrive in those circumstances. One of the things that Brendan and I are strong advocates for is know thyself. That's actually um, the Greek, right? Right at the beginning of the book. Yeah, exactly. But I think what a lot of people don't understand about the phrase know thyself is they think that it's a high and mighty thing. Like, oh, know thyself. That means I'm I'm a great super being. No, know how you're going to be weak right? Know where you're not actually going to be strong. Know that you can't be strong at everything. I am just not going to ever really be that great at superficial conversations. So if I have a a frame that I want to set, if I want to make a strong impression on somebody, I am not going to set up a circumstance where I, my skill set doesn't shine, right? I'm going to set up a, like, much like you set up this podcast, right, James, to talk to a bunch of great people that inspire you in it way that you're strong and shows your highlights. You aren't throwing big lavish parties to meet the people you wanted to meet where you'd talk to them for 30 seconds because you know that would drain you and that's not exactly where you shine. There's a lot of depth to your character. So there is, you know, there's an expression, amateurs talk strategy, professionals talk logistics. 
and frame is about the logistical setting. There are some places I just won't have a strong frame. Let's say a courtroom. The judge will have the strongest frame in a courtroom because he has been legislated that way, earned it in every way. I'm not going to go toe to toe with a judge. That would only lead to me losing. And he's he's even physically the highest up. Exactly. Like, you know, and the whole ritual of the courtroom. Yeah, there are there are literally hundreds of years of frames that have all colluded to make this person the authority in this situation. And what this person says goes. And Brendan points this out in the book and he points out that judge leaves his room though. He even leaves his courtroom. That power vanishes. So it, 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 you have to be very aware. Just, um, we talk about this when you meet celebrities, you're going to have the, um, you know, all of us have met celebrities through stand up and other means. Uh, I mean, it, uh, Brendan's met a president, like, you know, um, but yes. one of the things. What president? Bush. The greatest president of the. <laughs> yeah. Four more years, buddy. No. <laughs> but w one of the things is when you're around a celebrity, you will confer power onto them. So you will complete their status with power because when you were in a tribe, those things were one and the same. You couldn't have status without power in a tribe. There, that just didn't exist. But now we live in a place where you can have tons of status and no power, yet you'll still feel a primordial urge to comply to their demands or what they want. And you have to be aware of this because you might start doing things that you would have never wanted to do. And the thing is, so you have to ask yourself in settings when you're around very attractive people, when you're around people who have a lot of status or certain things, am I okay with where this is going? And whose frame am I in? Am I okay with where this is going? It's okay if you're in their frame, but you have to realize that the longer you're in somebody's frame, the more likely you are to do something that you wouldn't want to do because it gets more intense over time. That's the thing with kidnapping people. You're like, how does Stockholm syndrome happen? That's because they've spent such a long amount of time in somebody else's frame of reality that now they side with that person over their own best interest. Right, and this, that, that example right there expresses the importance of knowing this. Not only you know, the, the inner frame, but then the specific techniques you use. Uh, it's a couple of things I wanna mention. One is just this, a lot of this is about hierarchy and status and people trying to, you know, and it's not like the, the head of the tribe is the one you're competing with. And you talk about this in the book. Often it's the people who are equals to you uh, that are the ones that you have the most trouble asserting frame over or, or, being a, or having your, their frame asserted over you. Like you're not trying to compete with the judge when you're in the courtroom. You're trying to compete with the other lawyer. So you know, it, uh, that's an important thing to, to bring up. Also, the notion of a tribe is so primal. I mean, we've been primates for millions of years. So this is like built into our DNA. And in fact, all of our neurochemicals, you know, either, you know, fire or not fire based on, you know, our relative status in the tribe and how it changes second by second throughout the day, which, which it does. So your, your dopamine, your serotonin, your oxytocin, your cortisol, mm -hmm. all of these things go off depending on frame control, like where you're fitting in on the hierarchy. That's why it, this is, that's why this is so important, not only for persuasion, but for, for peace of mind and for satisfaction with your life. A million percent. And I really want to say this, the malady of our time, things are better than they've ever been, but more people are killing themselves. More people are anxious than ever. And that's because they have status anxiety because we are so concerned. It used to be simple when we were in feudal times, when we were even in slave times, 
You were born a slave and you died a slave. There was no upward mobility. There was no pressure on you. Um, Durkheim talks about the reason why suicide goes up in industrialized nations is because you now become responsible for your status and we moralize not having status. Not only do you not have status, but you're a bad person if you don't have status. You're a bad person if you don't have money. And that those things, we, talk, we, we spend a lot of time talking about inferiority and this, the feeling of inferiority, because people don't talk about it, but it is the most insidious feeling because you're not aware of how it is limiting you and even what you expect for yourself, what you're willing to ask, what you're willing to say, where you're willing to stand, how you're willing to dress, it shapes all of those things. And when you feel inferior, you will, it is this massive shrinking. Anger is easy to spot. I'm getting angry right now. But you might just 24 hours of the day feel inferior. It might be running in the background programming of your brain and you might not even know it. And the real reason it's so insidious, and we talk about this a lot in the book, and this is you know, again, this is like, this is really critical to understand for people who want to try to, you know, win the conversations that matter in their life is like the feeling of inferiority. People will not admit this to themselves because they'll, they'll use avoidance techniques for ever recognizing that they feel inferior and they can avoid it by never entering a situation in which they have to confront those feelings. So somebody can walk around. I mean, we, you know, we talk about MMA in the book where it's like, look, there are arenas, there are conversations, there are situations in life where, you know, you will encounter reality. You know, frames are metaphysically, I suppose, exist, but it doesn't matter how strong a frame is that you're the best boxer in the world. If you get in a, in a ring and you get punched in the face and knocked out, you're, you're sorry, that's what happened. You can't, no amount of belief is going to change the outcome of that boxing match. But if you never get in that boxing ring, you can go to your grave believing that you're truly a good boxer. Like there's yeah. only one way to, to, to actually, to actually, know this for sure. And that's, and that's encountering it. And that's where the building up of self-perspective, but, but that's why inferiority is such an insidious feeling. You will never recognize the opportunities you could have had if you allow that to continue to run in your background programming. And I, I would just say this, one of the big things is it's also a thief of joy, right? Because no matter what you achieve and we talk about jealousy in this too, because jealousy is another thing where people wrap a lot of shame around that emotion right? Because no one wants to be known as jealous. But the thing is, the jealousy loses a lot of power when you just say, I'm jealous. Yeah. And when you can admit it, now the shame no longer has power over you. You're no longer feeling guilt about your presence. So now you can actually understand, hmm, why is it that I'm feeling jealous or envious in this situation? What, what about the circumstance? And we recommend if you feel envious of somebody, that you're, and the, the easiest way to see that is when someone walks in a room and you just don't want to like them. They, you, they, they, have, they haven't done anything. You just, they walk in the room, you're like, I, I don't like I this. Feel, I feel like that happens to me every time I walk into a room that nobody likes me. So I think it's the <laughs> I think it's reverse thing of jealousy is happening somehow. So. <laughs> but, but, but stop yourself when you find yourself doing that. I do that like, I am a vain person, as both James and Brendan know, um, to no end. And w whenever there's someone more attractive than me, I'm just like, oh, man, like, I don't know, you know, I'm trying to find their weakness, <laughs> right? And then I catch myself, and I'm like, I'm just, I'm just feeling envious because they're an attractive person. So then I compliment them in my head or out loud. I say, hey, you know, blah, 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 on their characteristic. And that frees me of that because now I can respect them. Right. And it, I change the, the envy into admiration, which is a lot better of a feeling because a lot of times we and we talk about transmuting feelings. 
within this, right? Every emotion can lead to another emotion. And one thing that's really important is that the thoughts that you're having are a lot of times the byproduct of the emotion that you're having. So mm. we, we break it down like this. Physiology is in the backdrop. If you're very hungry, you're very likely, let's say Brendan and I've been traveling for 15 hours. Neither of us have eaten. And then he's just like chewing gum kind of loud. And I just start thinking about, you know, Brendan is super inconsiderate. He's one of the most inconsiderate people I know. And he has stupid glasses and that facial, facial hair, what, what's going on, right? I, I, and I'm making up all these narratives to justify my feeling of discomfort that comes from a physiological issue of me being hungry. You want to check for that. When you're getting unreasonably upset over something small, am I hungry? Is it hot? Is it cold? Am I tired? Yeah. Then you go to emotions. A lot of times when someone says something really hurtful to you in a fight, that's not actually how they feel. That is the emotion coming up with a narrative to justify itself. Emotions have their own momentum and they will look to up the ante. To, they want number one to you to match their energy. So they're going to say something incendiary where it's going to get a rise out of you. But number two, that emotion is just producing the thoughts that are going on in your head. So you're going to come up with thoughts to justify the feeling, not, not the other way around, right? Where the thought produced the feeling. And, and by the way, that's an important, gosh, there's so many different, there's so many different directions to go. So that, that's a point where frame control is great. Like let's say someone sends you the, or says to you the most insulting possible thing. They, they know how to push your buttons. They're, let's say they're really funny and good at this. They just said the most insulting possible thing to you. Uh, you could either respond to that, like, don't you ever say that to me or, or you could completely ignore the content of what they say, make a joke about it and say like, Hey, are you, I don't know. Did someone, did someone step on you? You know, you say something that just completely Or you could go burn something. their fucking house down. How dare they? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, like, but this is a perfect point for frame control, which is just to rise above it and just to ignore what they say and kind of like talk about a bigger, you know, almost like a zooming out, like a bigger issue. What's really well, going what on What you're with talking them. about. Yeah. What you're talking about. We talk, we talk about a lot in the book, which is essentially you are selectively. I mean, just imagine, you know, this is a thought experiment. It's just imagine you're, you know, you're, you're, Brad Pitt, you're whoever. So insert valuable person here. And somebody walks up to you, like David Goggins, and somebody walks up to you and they go like, hey man, you're a dick or you're a piece of shit or I don't like you. They wouldn't even, it, it wouldn't register. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? They're not responding to these things that are trying to attack them because it's like, dude, my life is so dope. I don't know why some Yahoo saying something to me would even occur to me. So part of the problem is like, if it, you, by responding, you are, by, by allowing it to hit you, and being honest with yourself about whether or not it does and then deciding whether or not you want to respond, you're choosing what level of status you want to give yourself. That, that actually is a moment of choice. Well, no, that's just such a good point that it is about status. Like if someone insults you, and I'm just thinking of a recent situation that I was in where someone insulted me and tried to, to bring me down or said certain things, and I did have to interact with the person. I couldn't just totally ignore. So I just completely made... Like I picked one of the words that they said and just made a joke about it, completely not addressing what this person had said. And then it kind of like, and by the way, this was a frame control I tech technique I picked up from you guys, but th that sort of like broke the spell. Like I cast a new spell. I created a new frame where what they had said had, had no value anymore. And now we were able to really 
discuss and move forward and, and, and have a, have a solution to a problem. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. And, 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 but, but this is the thing too, like we've been talking a lot about the inner frame, which is so important. That's like the kind of the tip of the iceberg is the techniques. And then there's this whole, you know, uh, inner frame and self-respect and self-awareness. And it's funny because the techniques by themselves will work, will work to be persuasive. Like if you guys are doing sales, like, like Brendan, you're, you're a sales guy. Let's say you were going to sales and you say to the person, Hey, uh, you know, you seem like the kind of guy who, you know, really values the outdoors. You, you're probably always going outdoors. So you're, you're using a frame control technique, you're shaping. And, uh, then they might say, yeah, I, I guess I am even if, whether they are or not, but now you're able to sell like a new canoe to them or whatever. <laughs> not that you sell canoes, yeah, like just, your door-to-door well, so canoe James, What James is, just to be clear, what James is talking about, shaping is a technique in which you reward someone for the qualities you want them to have. Whether or not they have it. Whether or not they have it. And it can't be something that, this is, I mean, just to be clear, it cannot be something that is obviously not true. You know, I can't, I can't say to someone who's, you know, morbidly obese, like, you know, one of the things I love about you is how athletic you really are. Like, it just isn't, <laughs> it can't. No, but you could say, but you could say, like, if you're going in to your boss for a raise, you could say, look, what I've really loved about working with you is, and, and even with this company, is that it's always been an expansive as a company. You guys are always looking for new frontiers to grow. There you go. New ways to in- incentivize both your customers and your investors and your employees. And how, you know, how did you do that? Or how do you think about that? And then, you know, you get them talking about it. And then finally you say, you know, along those lines, I've been thinking, I've been doing extra work. And, you know, I know- Here's some we- new proposals that are not right. necessarily our, our core brand, but could be very, here's why they'd be valuable techniques. Because you've already rewarded someone for having that quality, the, the likelihood is, I mean, you've got two things going on. One is the, uh, some reciprocity because they're going to, more likely consider what you're saying because you've given them, you've attributed a positive quality to them outside of the specific quality. But the secondly is like, they want to live up. They will want to live up to that quality because now they've, they've taken right. it on as a mantle. And, and also you've given them status and they want to keep that status over you. Otherwise they're yep. in, yep. if they suddenly lose that status, they're in an unfamiliar hierarchy in the frame you just created. If you're, if you're in control of the frame right then. I want to tell you guys two different situations where it's the self-awareness is so important because that triggers the knowing when to use frame control because you can't be using it all the time. You'll get, as you point out, you'll get frame fatigue. But uh, these two situations have happened to me and I'm curious what you think because I think I didn't realize at the time, if I wish I, I wish I had known more about frame control uh, during these periods. So one time, this is like 20 years ago, I was working for somebody and often he would take me out to dinner. We'd go out to dinner at nice restaurants. And he was kind of a larger than life personality. He was a, a world-class athlete. He was famous in the industry we were working in, which was the investing industry. He would always wear like odd clothes and he was very tall. So he would stand out in a, in a crowd and very eccentric. But I remember getting home and thinking to myself after like the fourth or fifth time we had gone out to dinner, I always sort of felt bad about myself afterwards. Like I felt bad about me and I didn't 
really, I sort of attributed it to him, but I didn't really know what to do because I was kind of dependent on rising up in this industry. And he was sort of my gateway to that. So that was situation number one. Another situation, which Bill was actually more familiar with, I was in a, a, a relationship and I remember I was constantly trying to figure out what, what would make her happy, what she needed and so on. And I remember sometime one, uh, somebody asked me, well, what do you need? And I realized I didn't have any answer. I had no clue what I, I wanted. I need her to be okay. I need yeah, her that, to be fine. That was yeah. the only thing I needed. And so I sort of realized that that kind of became a clue for me afterwards, both those situations. In, in one situation, I realized, oh, if I'm around somebody consistently and, and I consistently don't feel good about myself afterwards, something has to change. And something is wrong in a relationship, not necessarily broken, but something is wrong. It might be me that's wrong. Something's wrong when I don't know what I need. When someone directly asks me, well, what do you need? And I can't answer the question, then self-awareness might be as simple as that. Like, I still don't know what I need, but I know I don't know what I need. So I'm not like, it's not like I'm like this champion of self-awareness and self-respect, but at the very least, I'm recognizing, huh, I don't know what I need, and I realize that that means something, but I don't know what it is. Yeah, I think one of the big things too is that the most, the more difficult person tends to control the frame. So the person who just has the, a lot of times the person who is less easygoing, who has the more demands, is just going to naturally control the frame because they need more things in order to be okay. And that, by the way, that's a standard negotiation negotiating technique. So if you're negotiating with another person. If your list of demands is longer than theirs, then it's very powerful because you could give up the nickels for the dimes then in order to get what you want. A million percent. And in a relationship, I mean, and here's the thing with a lot of empaths who are built to just try to kind of make other people happy and really could just be okay with just a room and affection. Um, you have to be aware of this because sometimes a person will naturally withhold the one thing that you need in order to get the many things that they want. And so it, 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 it becomes tough where you're just like, oh, I just want affection and for you to love me and to, to call me and all these other things. And they do that sparingly, but you feel so good when they do it, but they have a bunch of things that they need done. And you feel like, well, if I get all these things done, then I earn their affection, right? This and is, this is like so rap. important. I just, I want to talk to this point too, Bill, because this is so important to understand because remember how we said that emotions create beliefs or create actions, the emotions will create words. This is like a, a, a critical part of frame because the one frames are felt, you know, you could feel it. If you're hanging out with this, you know, investment athletic person for hours on end, and then at some point you recognize, wow, I'm not really feeling so good about myself when I leave. I mean, that's a clear indication that there's something going on there. And you, you have to do the, the investigative work to try to figure out what happened in order to get to that point. And I think that, you know, not to, to blame people who we are in relationship with sometimes because they're, you know, stingily using affection that you want to, that you want to gain. Right. It's not to blame because they don't know that they're doing that either necessarily. That's why labeling is such an important technique. You know, if you're, if you're just to return to like, you know, Bill's example, if you're, if you, if you say, look, I, you know, every time you use the bathroom, it's, it's, I've gone in here like six times and every time I do, it's, it's just disgusting. Um, you know, could you please clean up after yourself? And they start throwing out all these things at you. 
that's called, that's a psychological technique for that is called gunny sacking. That's a, it's a term. And you could go, look, you're throwing all these things at me. You're gunny sacking me again. Like why, what is it about this that is so difficult for me to have to ask you about? And, and it's strange because part of the challenge is that like in relationship, the person who's doing that, who's gunny sacking you at the moment, they might, they might not even realize that they're doing that. And what they actually want, they do want to be in relationship with you. They want to have a healthy relationship. Most people do. They just, they have some mental furniture that they're avoiding or moving around in order to, to do that. That's, that's the key chess game that you're playing with frame control is around people's bits of mental furniture that they themselves are not even aware that they're doing. A million percent. A lot of people aren't bad faith actors. A lot of people have learned their argument tactics at a very young age. And that's why they, that, that's why relationship arguments seem so juvenile a lot of the time, because we learned the, our ways of maneuvering things in high stress situations. All of us are really good at pleasantries. Pleasantries are our 30 year old self, right? Or however old we are. But it is when you get into high pressure situations and the moments that matter, when your frame starts failing you and you start getting a lot of adolescent emotions. And when you have the, um, as Brendan points out, when you have the emotional, emotional scaffolding to do something in a certain way, the thought the, the manipulative tactics are going to come out, whether or not you mean to hurt the person, but it's not enough. And sometimes, you know, um, you can't just tell somebody sometimes you're being manipulative because that's the equivalent of telling Mike Tyson, you're punching me in the face. You're punching me in the face. That doesn't, it's not going to change the fact that he's punching you in the face. Sometimes you, what you have to do is you have to create a validation vacuum by being absolutely silent so that they crave for you to just respond to something. And then that gets it at a new normal, right? There, there are times that labeling does work when you're arguing with someone in good faith. And there are times that someone, if you call attention to it, you will unlock a rage that you've never seen before because their, their shadow is being seen. Right. And, and, and it's a moment, um, you know, uh, I, I had a, a joke about um, becoming self-aware for the first time. It's like um, um, looking upon a mirror only to find out that you're ugly. Right. Like <laughs> oh, I, I was self-aware at the age of eight. <laughs> <laughs> but but a, a lot of people aren't confronted with that mirror. And sometimes when you're in a frame control thing and you hold up that mirror, you have to be ready for not the, the reaction you want. Because this person is, oh my God, that, that's not me. I, I don't identify with anything bad or wretched. Are you saying that I'm like this, this, this? And sometimes the only thing you can do is to be silent, let them cry it out. <laughs> Some people will manipulatively cry, right? As, as there are people who will get very loud, angry and throw things. And um, we talk about this. They will um, try to hijack frame with violence or belligerence. There are people who will try to do it the other way, which is by make, crying and in a circumstance where they probably don't actually feel like crying to make the other person feel bad and then capitulate to their demands or not face an uncomfortable truth about themselves. And these things are really important to look out for. This is what you do if someone is manipulatively crying in a way. If, and how you can tell this is not, is not whether or not somebody cries, it's in the frequency and it's in what they're crying about. If they're crying, if it's a small thing, and you're aware enough to know that this is a small thing and this doesn't, isn't grounds for somebody to cry, then wait it out for them to cry. Watch, don't comfort them, let them cry it out, let them feel that emotion, then see what their next move is, restate your first, restate your position, right? Anything they bring up, don't really address it. You're just trying to solve the problem at hand. Solve one problem at a time rather than 20 all at once. So, so I, I, I wanna comment on this because 
in this situation where I was in this relationship where I didn't know what I needed, I think my self-respect during that situation a few years ago was beaten down so low. I, I called Bill one time when I knew an argument was about to happen. I just had no clue what I was going to do. And Bill at that point gave me a, a kind of walked me through several of these frame control techniques and when they would come up. And Bill, you outlined almost minute by minute, this is what she's going <laughs> to say first. This is what you should say. Then she's going to go to the window and she might start crying. This is what you do. Then she's going to go put on her shoes as if she's going to be walking out the door. This is what you say. And all of those things, it was like you choreographed like a theater scene. And by the way, to your point, this is not, she wasn't a, she's a very good person. She was she's not a bad person. Uh, I don't know if she's manipulative or not, it, but it's to your point. Like we learn these techniques are the, by default when we're very young. And unless we kind of graduate through them later, uh, like at some point we're not rewarded for them, you're going to keep using them. And so for me, I had to learn new ways to interact with people I was feeling insecure around. And that was, so, so this is why I'm saying, the techniques by themselves are extremely powerful because, by the way, that argument that day did settle in a very peaceful fashion and, and we were able to move forward. But uh, the, the techniques are powerful even without the self-awareness. It just all helps when it's put together. And, and it's extremely powerful and accurate. And, and the, the techniques work. And it helps even further when you have the the import when you realize the importance of the the inner frame as well, which is so difficult. I, I really appreciate you saying that. And one of the things that I think, um, and I really loved working with Brendan on this, is because we a lot of this book is one of the big big pillars is financial success, but the other one is having the relationships that you want. Most people, the pain in their life comes from either not having the person they want or not having the, they have the person they want, but they don't have the relationship they want with that person. And both of those things can really be brought, like come together if you just have a good frame and frame control. And we don't just talk about the inner message. We, we're talking about superficial things too. Sometimes you don't have frame because your hair is not kept well. You're, you, you're not dressed up um, in a, uh, the appropriately for the context. All these other things, they matter in creating the halo effect. And you want to do as little as possible to have the frame. And if that means wearing nicer clothes, looking at a GQ magazine, doing things that you thought are irrelevant, human beings are, are, are criminally superficial. We're criminally superficial. We're having, there, there are massive problems in the world that people are killing people just because they don't look like each other. That's it. It's just, they don't look the same, so they don't like them. That's how superficial human beings are, but that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. So you've got to figure out how to utilize these things for your advantage. One of the things we talk about in the book, which might be controversial, is diction. That one of the most powerful things when it comes down to frame control is speaking in a way in which that that person is going to properly receive you. Because the way you speak communicates so much about your past. Have you ever wondered why um, we all like the English accent? Has to do with colonialism and history and <laughs> The aristocracy. Have you ever wondered why the English, everything in England, the upper class is all French? Why? Because they were conquered by the French. And so you have to understand like all of these things are at play and they're at play at a subconscious level. So if you're able to utilize them by doing tongue twisters, by 
um, utilizing your voice in a certain way by being aware that your voice is getting higher or ending an upward inflection. All these things matter because we're at a core primates. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about that for a second because after the first time I read your book, which was, I don't know when your first draft was. I feel now because of the pandemic and the lockdown, yeah. time has we're gotten distorted. We're in a time dilation. <laughs> so I, I can't tell if it was seven years ago or four, seven months ago. I think it was li- realistically, I think it was about eight or nine months ago, your first draft. Yep. Maybe a I little think that's longer. Right. And um, I remember the stuff about voice because sometimes when I'm uh, talking to someone I'm a little nervous around, my voice does go up at the end as if I'm asking a question. And you specifically addressed it, that that's like reducing my status. It's reducing my authority. And it's, again, an exercise. Whether or not I feel like I deserve that authority, it does work to change your voice. Like, if you yeah. can't well, do it underneath, you could at least do the technique. Yeah, I want to I point this out because using that voice inflection, here's the, here's the science behind it, is that studies tend to show, uh, even though I know that you love that our book doesn't have a ton of science in it, James. <laughs> I will say well, that. Well, I, I, the reason why is because it actually works. And like, I can't stand like, well, science shows if you offer somebody something now versus later, or if you put a post-it note on their screen, they're going to be more influenced than if you don't put the post-it. Like, I hate that stuff, but your stuff actually works. But that said, I do see the roots of all of this is in our primal psychology from how yeah. we've been forever. Yeah, well, so, so, you know, studies show that people who have speak with low tones tend to be attributed more authority, simply. And there's a whole bunch of evolutionary reasons for this, but uh, it, it just happens to be the case. And you can, you, you know, the, the, the candidate who typically wins the presidency is normally the taller one and the one with the lower voice tone. So, I mean, it's not always the case, but it's sometimes the case. But you can, you can manipulate voice tone just as you were saying. You were like, when I, when I respond, like, with a, maybe an inflection at the end, it sounds like a question. That can actually bait somebody. You might be in a situation in which you want to bait somebody into giving you approval to continue or by answering your question or by uh, maybe you'll elicit some investment from somebody by going, yeah, I agreed. I, I agree with you on this. You know, a good example for this is I do, you know, I do a lot of coaching for uh, people who do cold calls and cold emails. It's honestly, it's a really good way to start out a cold call is by asking a question because in that situation, you don't automatically want to, if you're the first time you're interacting with somebody, you don't want to automatically be the authority, especially if they don't know you because that could be threatening to them. You want to lure them into a sense of security and by deferring to them, at least initially in the phone call is a good way to to, for, to have them feel secure enough to allow you to continue. You know, just, just, I just want to point that out, that, that voice inflection, and we talk about this in the book, can be used in many different ways. That's why these techniques are very powerful. I, I like the idea, you, you talk about questions in the book uh, quite a bit, and I, I love using questions in frame control. And you just made me think of something else, which is that if you ask a question, but without the upward inflection, I, it seems that's extremely powerful. So, so if I say to you, um, you know, tell me about your weekend and I'm not raising, doing that upward inflection at the end. I'm giving you status because I'm asking you about your weekend. So you feel good. But at the same time, I'm not like play, you know, I'm not like pandering to you like, Hey, how was your weekend? No, it's and, a command. It's a question, right. but it's a command. So I'm yeah. a, so, so at the same time, I'm giving you status, but I'm also establishing that I have the authority to give you status. And I think that's a good use of, of questions in the frame control sense. 
A million percent. And you, you a lot of it. So um, Brendan brought up a lot of really great points about like the earning report. So it's called earning report, right? So like you'll notice a waiter, hey, how are you guys doing? Is there anything else I can get you? It's all going up, right? It's all submissive. It's all letting you know you're not a threat, which is great, like in certain circumstances and initially in things. But yeah, slowly when you do neutral rapport, which is what we've been talking about, how was your weekend? There's tension there. Now, tension's actually, we, we're taught to stay away from tension because it can go bad. But the thing is, is almost everything great that can happen needs tension. And uh, Brendan knows a lot about this with sales, where it's just, you need to create tension in order to get them to go one way or the other at a certain point. You can't just let it be like, oh yeah, whatever you want, because then you get into a space where the conversation doesn't move forward. And this happens with a lot of men with women. This is, and both Brendan and I used to be dating coaches. And a lot of guys, they'll Wait, be like- Technically, hold on. I was never a dating coach. I just worked for a dating coach. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> just to be clear. Um, what is the difference between of, working um, for one and being one? Yeah, I, I did. I did sales for his company. All right, good. Yeah, and, and but one of the things you'll notice with a lot of guys who there, there's a um, a certain type of guy who he is a, a magnanimous man, great job, just everything's going for him, and he's not not even a like the the straw man nice guy. He's actually just a good person, right? But he's interacting with the girl, and he's just like, yeah, like that's great, like oh, and and where where are you going after this? And blah blah blah. And there's no tension in it, and the girl interprets that sometimes, and this works the other way too. I'm not trying to gender this, and that she doesn't feel that spark. But what that spark is is the kernel of tension within the conversation. But if he just neutral rapport, now there's neutral rapport, and then there's downward rapport, where it's like, where were you? Like now, that's that's almost threatening. That's, that's a place where that breaks rapport. You can only honestly only do that maybe if you have explicit authority, right? That's almost a provocation for a fight. Neutral rapport though still builds a lot of tension where you're like, um, what were you doing this week? Interesting. That's completely different <laughs> than what were you doing this week? Interesting. Complete. And the problem, this is the deep thing is it's not just about how other people take you. We get into character based on how we sound. Brendan is an amazing improv actor. He can, I, I mean, I, I have seen Brendan pull out characters and do monologues with no script out of nowhere, completely just out of the ether. And, and the thing is, I, I want to point out is, is that you're not going to have to worry about the things to say if you sound, if your voice sounds great in that time. You're going to get the thoughts that populate your mind are going to be the thoughts of a person who sounds confident. People are only as confident as they sound because that's what our brain is telling us. You're allowed to be this confident at this time. And so there's, you really want to be aware of this because sometimes I get really excited. Um, and if you listen to James and I's first podcast, I sound different because I'm so excited to be there. I, I'm frenetic. I'm sharing a lot of information. But the issue is, is that I had a hard time getting people to take me seriously and I would do what is called overqualification. I would constantly be trying to qualify why I had reason to speak in the conversation. And I would be fighting for it where people would cut me off a lot easier than when I just took the time to be like recording myself on my phone, listen to the things that sounded weird, try to be more consistent, taking more time to speak. So how do you practice like voice? Because we're all used to, it's very hard to, to get out of your common patterns with voice. A million percent. So the first thing you want to do is it's just like any other muscle. It's just like doing speed drills with your feet, right? You think you can control your feet, but then you try and then you don't. I would suggest getting your, 
your um, smartphone, and I assume everybody here has a smartphone or computer, and just talking to it and listening, you, you're going to start noticing what's weird there. You want to at first keep your voice a little bit monotone just to get an idea. You want to be able to do that because when someone's monotone, it communicates tacit authority. It communicates this person provides good information. It's that NPR voice where you naturally want to trust what that person's saying. Then you want to play around with variants. You want to do maybe singing drills. All the, there's just so many different things you can do. The, 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 we talk about this in the book. This is a technique, and it's, it's something that I've, I've coached people who are trying to do same thing, early pipeline sales. Um, when they're practicing their sales pitch, take out your – or if you want to do stand-up comedy, I would also say this is a good way to – especially if you've never done it before, it's a good way to understand how you sound in your first bits. Is like take out your phone, read your – in the case of comedy, read your jokes, or if in the case of sales, read your pitch, say it, play it back, listen to it again, slow it down, listen to it again, repeat in the same cadence that you're speaking it in the voice memo, say it out loud at the same time, almost to like harmonize with it because you're going to feel things in your body as you try to do this. And you're going to hear things in your voice that you're, you, that escape you when you're normally talking. And it's, it's weird because it's, this is, this is, this is what people like professionals do these things. These are the kind of techniques that that, that professionals do. They have to go into a special arena to, to learn and perfect things in that specific space in order to go out into the regular world. And it's like, if you're encountering, I mean, we all have conversations that we have to win. This is a great technique to like go and do it. Very few people do it. So if, even if, if you take, if, even if you don't buy the book, uh, one, you should. <laughs> but if you don't buy the book and you take nothing else away from this, just doing this technique in terms of your voice as Bill was describing it will put you in, I, I, I guarantee you it'll put you in the top uh, 5% easily of people who, whose voices can be used as their best weapon. One of the things I would also recommend is tongue twisters. A lot of times we're actually mashing words together. We don't even realize it. And you're going to hear that back. So things like tongue twisters, um, things like mouth stretches, um, there are, and also practicing the, I'm going to tell you, practice talking. Hey, what's up, you guys? How's it going? So you, you can, okay, then practice. Okay, I'm going to be neutral. Hey, what's up, guys? How's it going? Now, authoritative. Hey, what's up, guys? Bill and I do this joke back and forth where we both try to talk in like the lowest tone possible. Hey, what's up, guys? My name is William What's up? <laughs> what's up, Will? How you doing? <laughs> yeah. And, and then also, there, there, there isn't, there's even the humeric tone, this, and leads into the stand-up point you're going to make, James, is like, hey, what's up, you guys? Like, there, there's a disarmor. Stand-up's interesting because it's the in-between between neutral and earning rapport. Your voice is higher, but it's not trying to earn the affection of the crowd. And so you want to know, what does my funny voice sound like? And play around with all these things. And the last thing I'd recommend is get an avatar. Get somebody who you like to hear talk that has the same accent as you. Don't waste your time trying to get an English accent. I'm British. I, 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 called, I called Lemon up. I was living in France during the lockdown. This is how bad lockdown got for me in France. No social interaction, nothing. I called Lemon. I'm like, I am going to adopt a British accent from this point on. I used to have it. Nobody can say anything. Otherwise, you have permission to shit on me. I'm just going to do it. This is, this is my life now. And I, I, I was talked out of it by my, our, our friend Karen. But um, yeah, like um, get somebody who has the same accent as you. For me, Malcolm X, I listen to him and I want to have the same kind of poise. And so I try to make myself sound more like him and have the same affect because I want to have that kind of persona. You know, it's, it's so interesting, the idea of uh, finding the avatar. Like before I go up on stand-up comedy, 
I always, I'll be in the hallway behind, you, you know, behind the door and I'm going up within the next 15 minutes. I'll always pick, I'll consciously pick who do I want to not like mimic completely on stage because I want to be my own person, but I need somebody like I'll listen, I'll pick one of a, about a dozen comedians that kind of are similar to my voice or style. And, but I know that they're the best in the world at their particular version of it. So I'll listen to that. And then that's at least for the first two or three seconds on stage. I'm like that person on stage and it works. The other thing that works is listening to yourself afterwards. Like I'll listen to myself after doing stand-up comedy and I'll realize, Oh, I wavered a little bit over here. And that's when the crowd got me because you are, you are in a frame. That is a place where you definitely need to use frame control. Like either, either you have the frame on stage or the audience does. And once the audience does for even a half a second, they're going to just eat you alive. Like your, your whole set is done. It's very difficult to, to get it back. And I was going to just ask like, what, what techniques would you use on a situation like, like stand-up is a weird thing. It's not like public speaking where everybody's coming out to hear you and listen politely. Stand-up comedy is almost like a gladiator format where you're being, you're being yeah. thrust out onto the stage. You had Marie Konnikova on not long ago who, who wrote uh, that great book about poker and you had Annie Duke a while ago. And both of them were like, poker is the best situation for understanding human decision-making. Stand-up comedy is almost the best situation for understanding frame battles and frame control because you are out-framing every single person in the audience. That's the game. It's, it's the hardest skill. So I've been semi-professional at poker and, I, and I've learned a whole bunch of skills outside of that. And stand-up comedy is by far the hardest skill I've ever had to learn. It's a constant frame battle. You are, you are, we talked about tribes earlier. You are, you are meeting a group of people and you're creating a tribe and then you're leading the tribe and you better lead them to some good places because if you don't, man, they're going to turn on you in a second. And that's, then that's a constant frame challenge. And that's why jokes are just, are, 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 are using logical components to mess with frame. That's what you're doing to the audience. It's, it's a great arena to learn, to learn frame control. Yeah. So what's, so I, I feel like with comedy, you need to do some kind of, I think my problem initially, like this is like five years ago was that, here I had been accomplished as a public speaker and I had many other accomplishments, but somehow or other, when I was on stage for specifically to do stand-up comedy, I would put in my head, oh, I have to act like a stand-up comedian. And I think that ruined me. That put me right back at the beginning when I had many decades of experience doing other things. And it was only when I was able to kind of bring my own life onto the stage combined with I don't know if you call them pattern disrupts or whatever that I started to get people to, to, you know, to basically to control the frame on stage instead of just desperately trying to make people laugh. Yeah. I think one of the things that's most difficult about standup is uh, you're getting a performance review every seven seconds. And not only that, it's like as if you're getting performance review and everybody knows out loud how funny that was. There's no art gallery where everybody lets everybody know whether or not that was a good piece of art. And you get up there and the, the final stage of any art is public performance where stand-up literally has to begin on stage. And for a lot of people, they're like, you know, why does bombing suck? And I've always said this, when you bombed in a tribe 50,000 years ago, they not only killed you, they killed your family too. Like that, you don't bomb, but that you, you don't say things that people don't like loudly and it be okay. So you have a primordial urge to shrink on stage 
and, and also being funny to people you've never met. And sometimes it's not about the way the word is, the, the sentence is worded. It's about how you sound saying that sentence. Sometimes you're, you're painting on a moving canvas that is somehow different yet the same every time you get on stage. And so there's all these moving components that it's so hard to really get a, a basis to build on for the skill that makes stand-up difficult. But one of the things that I think about frame control that really helps as a stand-up comedian is really understanding this. Comedians' opinions about you don't fucking matter. There is a, <laughs> that everybody is trying to impress other comedians. Everybody wants other comedians to think they're funny. But the problem with this is, is when you're in a hierarchy, when you're at the bottom of the dominance hierarchy, you will naturally regulate hormones like cortisol that will make you less funny. And you will limit the amount of testosterone you have because you don't think you are supposed to have that much status in the environment. So how do you, so how do you remove yourself from a hierarchy? How do you diversify hierarchies when you when you love a hierarchy so much, you want to rise up in a certain hierarchy? Well, I'll say this is number one, you're going to be affected by it. But the thing is, is to actually, so you, the thing is, everything happens with signals and signs. So when you feel like, oh, like so-and-so's in this room, you just like, you, you got to be like, yeah, fuck that, whatever. I don't give a fuck. They're not even that funny. Like, and, and like, you, the, the thing is, you, you, you just got to go up there and also be okay with bombing. And I would say this is as a stand-up comedian to get better when you're on stage, no matter what you are right about everything. The audience, if, if they don't laugh, they're wrong. When you get off stage though, the audience was right about everything. That's the hard part to do. So you, a lot of people do the opposite. When they're on stage, the audience is completely right. And that's why they're bombing. And then they get off stage just like oh, bad crowd tonight. No, you have to, and that's the weird judo you have to do. You have to get up there and you have to just defend something that's indefensible. And you have to not shrink. You have to puff out your chest um, and bomb with class. Um, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, there's this phrase, commitment to the bit. So sometimes you're like, you're mid-joke and you realize, huh, this is not really working out. And maybe you're in a whole persona, a whole character, and you say this is not really working out. Or you're not sure if it's going to work out by the end. Like maybe the payoff is at the end, but everybody is like looking at you like, what the hell is he doing? Commitment to the bit is very important. And commitment to that persona, so you build trust. If you're like switching personas, it's not so good either. Well, and also here's the thing is you're not telling the joke for them. Now you want them to laugh, but the sooner you're telling, you're, I want you to think about anytime you're really funny with a group of people, you're telling that story, not for them to laugh, but because you love telling that story. And so the, the, the sooner you stop caring about them and become almost solipsistic with your goal about like telling the story, it's not about them. I want to just say this in front of people. And if this ruins their day, if someone goes out and kills themselves after hearing this shit, I don't give a fuck. I'm finishing this story. This is my story to tell. I've earned this time on stage. And you're not, you who know nothing about comedy is not going to take this away from me. You are not the steward of whether or not I'm funny. And that's the hardest thing because here's the problem with stand-up comedy is it's so hard to believe that you're actually funny because you have so much overwhelming visceral evidence. Constant evidence. evidence. Yeah. You're not funny. <laughs> But that's why it's that's why it's so good to learn how to have such a strong frame because you got to reframe yourself in this situation. What's it about? It's not about this set. It's about sets. It's not about this laugh and this joke. It's about jokes. I'm turning this from a finite game to an infinite game. 
and, and Brendan and I are saying this, but that doesn't mean that bombs don't still fucking bother. You, the hardest thing about stand-up is you can, under, you can understand everything you need to know. You could have listened to the Mark Maron podcast, Joe Rogan, James Altucher show, listened to Opie and Anthony for 15, 20 years. No, you understand that you're going to have to go through it, but the pain of it, like everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And that is stand-up. You have a, oh yeah, like, no, no, no. Like, you know, you're just gonna have to take the bomb and roll with it. No, it's just like hard in that moment. And the thing is, and this is another thing about frame control, frame control is reflexive a lot of time. That's why it's really hard to learn. And so is stand-up. The hardest things to train, just like martial arts, depend on reflexes. Because you're like, oh shit, like I got, got to do this thing right now in this very condensed amount of time while people are watching. You, it's very hard to reorient yourself. And with stand-up, it's so nuanced. The joke might have not been funny because your face just emoted weird. You just was like, <laughs> at the end of it, and they were like, <laughs> that, that, and, and that's what ruined the joke. And you might not know. You, you make a good point, though, that if you enjoy, like I'm thinking of um, like Chris DiStefano's 9-11 story. If anyone has oh, that's a great joke. YouTube, Chris DiStefano, 9-11. Chris has been on the podcast. History Hyenas, his, his podcast has been on the podcast. I've been on theirs. Um, but the 9-11 story, he is just, you could just tell he is having raw fun on the stage. And he just, he's, he, you also get the sense he doesn't really care that the audience, what the audience thinks. Now he does, and he's very charming to the audience, but at the same time, he puts them down a little in the beginning in a charming way. Like he, he's mm -hmm. doing some frame there, but then he's just having so much fun telling the story and they're just on... They're just on the ride with him. A, mil a million, you, it, it, you just see joy in his face. There's a point where the audience is, is, is just an accessory to him, for him to get this whole story out. And it's, hard, it, it's easier said than done to get yourself in that place. Because what, what's going to happen is you'll say this to yourself, but then you'll expect something. And this is another thing about frame control. We talk about this um, in uh, the context um, pillar of inner frame where in order to have a dynamic frame and it, you also have to understand that you can't plan for everything to go a particular way. And the more you need things to go a particular way, the less control you are in of a conversation or of the set. I want to flip this back because just to apply this to terms we talked about already, inferiority, the feeling of inferiority is part of the reason someone will feel the neediness in order to have a plan work perfectly. So like the feeling of like, I'm going to have all these jokes and this is exactly how I'm going to tell them is 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 where this comes from or i have this negotiation here's exactly the way this thing to go i have a date planned here's exactly the way it's going to go and that reinforces a feeling of inferiority within oneself and that neediness is like poison to audiences well it's also it's it's what nasim taleb would call fragility versus anti-fragility like if you're if you're fragile to the audience you're, you're lost you have to be you know able to handle anything they do and still come back stronger I mean, look at Bill Burr in 20 minutes on stage uh, in, in front of Philadelphia or 12 minutes, one of the two. Anyway, Bill Burr, 12 minutes, 20 minutes in front of the stage in Philadelphia. Booze, people are screaming at him. He just goes, he goes straight out into that massive social disapproval and just goes straight at it. And that, that's what made that clip is what I think really made him famous was that he just didn't, yeah. he just did not, he refused their frame so hard that at the end of 12 minutes, they came back and accepted his. 
a, a million percent. And people really underestimate the power of having a microphone. Like, you know, you, you have a microphone. This is this. If you had a microphone in the year 1300, you would have ruled the known world. That's it. You are the Charlemagne. That, the microphone end game. The the power and a lot of people underutilize. And the, you see this in frame control. A lot of people underutilize their strengths because we've also taught people, and this is a, a Nietzschean thing. A lot of people are ruled by a concept of slave morality, and it's that we want to wait for, we want to wait to be chosen. We, we, we think that choosing yourself, like James said, that's James, that book is becoming more and more true. Like, you know what yeah. I'm saying? Like that, that, it, that is the time, but people look down on it. People look down on choosing yourself. People yeah. want to get chosen because and they want to be like, master, please pick me. No, and people are desperate to be chosen. And not only that, people also, not only are they desperate to be chosen, but they think choosing yourself in the most negative way, they think it's selfish. Exactly, exactly. And when Nietzsche talks about it, he talks about the fact that master morality thinks that choosing, your, has always venerated choosing yourself, courage, um, uh, being duplicitous, all of these things. So you kind of need to even inspect your moral, you want to do moral hygiene and see, Am I, am I a person, do I really value being nice or do I just want people to have a nice opinion of me? Because there are some times you're what, getting what you want will go in the face of your self-image and reputation protection is one of the, we have such a desire to protect our reputation and to live up to the standard that we think of a good person that it might cost us everything. People get in marriages they never wanted to be in um, people take jobs they never wanted to have. That people live entire lives to just fulfill the desires of other people. To so other people be like, oh yeah, John, great guy. But you have to ask yourself, do I want to live somebody else's life for me, or do I want to live my own life? And here, and it's not just one decision. I don't want to do what I call the biographer's bias or narrative disorder, where you're like, oh. And that moment I chose to be the frame master of frame. And I told my boss to fuck himself. And I like walked out of there <laughs> and I started my life. No, it happens slowly. You have to get used, used to playing the character of yourself. Just like Brendan has spent so much time developing his skills as an actor through improv, doing competition and all of these other things. That's how he's able to hop into that character. You have to do the same thing with the most confident versions of yourself. And I'm going to tell you what, frame control sometimes isn't pretty you're going to mess up. It's not like you read our book and then you try it out and people are like, oh yeah, you know what? He's a different guy now. No, the, the stronger your frame, the more people hate you. Brendan and I are two of the most hated people in the Chicago comedy scene. <laughs> I was actually on a podcast called Nobody Likes You in the city of Chicago. <laughs> it's funny. And, and this is how unliked I am. I wasn't even, people wrote into the show to hate on me hanging out with Brendan. And they were begging people... for, for the podcaster not to put you on the show. They hated you so much. They, yeah, well, I didn't, <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't want to see Brendan. This is how strong of a friend. And I want to take, I want, I want you guys to really, um, I, I, I really respect Brendan for doing this. Brendan. So the, the whole context of the podcast is where people write in anonymously why they hate you. Brendan. And then, and then, they, and then they confront you on it. And listen to people write to say just mean things that were like honestly just unfounded. 
and laugh Man, about you it. gotta just check my twitter of people talking to me about twitter on <laughs> yeah yeah james goes through this day. every day <laughs> i mean i could just find it like right if i just scroll down like a page or two right now there's like stuff like oh if I see James Aldrich's stupid head again, I know it's a top in Bitcoin or some <laughs> nonsense like that. It's been like three years. Get over it. I got to get over it. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, and it's very interesting, the more status you have, status attracts attention, both good and bad. People only look at it one way, but there's a reason why famous people need bodyguards because the more status you get, attention, it, it, it shapes people's minds in ways that they're not ready for. Yeah, if you try to enforce a stronger frame on the world, you should expect to eventually meet stronger frames coming back on you. That's the way that, that's yep. the way that it's going to work. It has to, QED. It has to. And it's- But not in a negative was, way necessarily. So, no, no, not in a negative way. Yeah, not in a negative way necessarily. Actually, a lot of frames could be really positive. And, and this is why you don't want to get addicted to frame, which we yeah. talk about in the book. But you know, somebody might ask, like, why, Brendan, did you sit down in this 90-minute podcast and have listened to people, is it because you have such an indigenous need to be loved that you are willing to go that far to get attention? Yes, listener, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> and but uh, also, we're, we're hanging out. We haven't, had, we haven't, the three of us haven't hung out in like, uh, like seven or eight months. Or I know we need to go to, we, what, yeah, we need to go to Soho House again when, when the pandemic passes. But I'd say the also, the other reason is like, look, I mean, you know, it's like David Goggins. What, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So I was like, all right, I'm never going to have another opportunity to, like this. So to just anonymously find out what my shadow looks like, I better go sit down and listen to it. And what's, what's another thing is this is that like Brendan has just done so much for a lot of those people who wrote in and had be, probably been the greatest contributing member to the Chicago comedy scene, always willing to help people whenever they needed him. A lot of times the narratives that people build around you they, they're not even right. They're, 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 they don't even have anything to really do with you. They, they, they start painting on you whatever they want to see. And, and most of the frames that come your way are good. I want to use Charlie D'Amelio as an example. Charlie D'Amelio, for those of you who don't know, is a, the biggest TikTok star um, in the world. She has about 80 million followers. She's going to have more followers than Trump by the end of the year, unless TikTok gets banned, in which case she still will have more That's followers. probably why he's banning it. Yeah, right. <laughs> but there was a woman, and I, I, I want to talk about how the attraction of attention works both ways. She's getting millions of dollars, but there was a woman who paid a guy to rape her. That came out. And it was, it, it's, a, it's completely, you would be like, why would someone ever do that to some 16-year-old girl? And now this, girl's, this woman's arrested because her level of status has basically plagued this woman's mind that much. That's why Hollywood people, like Emma Watson doesn't take selfies with people because she doesn't want to give people her location at any which time where they could triangulate her, her thing because she's had stalkers. Is Emma, Emma Watson's a beautiful woman, but is she that beautiful? No, but she has 40 million followers. And that corrupts people's minds because they can't, it's, it's like a trance that they get into. And you're not immune to this. Even us knowing this fall into the same trance. So, look, you guys, when's the Power Bible coming out? Uh, by the time, you'll be able to get it uh, on Amazon by the time this, uh, this, this podcast is, I think, released. We're, we're releasing uh, basically in, in uh, mid-August. So if you want to go check it out, it's just the Power Bible on Amazon. We've also got the audiobook that will be hopefully released by the time this comes out. Also, Bill and I narrated it, which was awesome. Paperback? You're doing a paperback? Paperback is also available on Amazon. Good. So 
I feel like it's been a year in the making, the book, and it's been so excellent. Oh, I'd never seen the cover. Let me see that again. Yeah, let's, uh, I'll pop that up again. This was the uh, proof copy that I got. How many pages? The, uh, so on the, on the doc I have, it's, uh, it's smaller, but I'm just curious, in print, how many pages did it come out to be? It's about 200 pages. Oh, and it was, it's been about a two-year journey of us putting this together. I mean, it's a lot. It started out about three times the length, and we were pretty ruthless with cutting, cutting it down to just the most effective. You know, so you're, honestly, James, your feedback has been so valuable in this to us because I think you know, we, you know, this is something Bill and I have, you know, Bill and I have been friends for years. We talk about this stuff all the time. I mean, we, we talk about, you know, as two people who I think have to do extra work in order to try to build strong frames. You know, this is an ongoing conversation and for us to be able to cut it down and then hear from somebody we love and respect as much as you that it's been very valuable to you and helpful and these techniques you found really good uh, has just been fantastic because I, that's, that's really, that's what we wanted to create. And, and I, I think we've done a, a pretty good job. I mean, I've described some of these techniques to uh, Robin, my wife. So then one time we were having a, uh, a high stakes discussion, not an argument, but a high stakes discussion. And I start doing some labeling and she's like, cut that frame control shit. <laughs> like, I know what you're up to. Game, game <laughs> recognizes game. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to my life. That's I, I, the second. She, it's just like, I, how am I supposed to? Yeah, I, I empathize with you. And that's and also um, I, I hope I hope never to marry someone who's read our, our book. <laughs> you know, one, one thing one thing I also want to point out that is, um, you know, uh, Bill and I were talking about it a few weeks ago and I was even thinking of including in my next book. But it's if right now it's in neither of our books because I have a chapter about your book in my book. But uh, there, there was this, there was this notion uh, of meta frame control, which is like. Uh, you know, Bill was taking an action and he was worried about what some people would think of him, but he wasn't really worried about those specific people. They were already in his head telling him what he was doing was wrong. And it's mm-hmm. all, and so I was thinking, oh, that's interesting because you could use these frame control techniques with the voices in your head as well. Those are very real mm-hmm. voices that are battling in your brain for frame. A million. We we have the specters of so many uh, so many ghosts we have defeated within our mind, but they're still there. There there are people that are that we haven't spoken to in 13 years who somehow still have real estate within our mind, giving their own influence. And um, the new book that I'm working on is called The Holocron, and it's about basically breaking out the, breaking down the anatomy of identity because there's so many things going on within our mind, and we we talk about identity as if it's a monolith, and it's not. There are so many different components. And if we can just break down and understand where some of these voices are coming from within ourselves and what ends they want. And by being able to be more transparent in that way, we'll be able to hopefully um, navigate situations with a lot more strength and have a lot stronger frame moving through life. Yeah. Like people always say, oh, don't be nervous. Just be yourself. That doesn't mean anything. (laughs) That advice is like the worst advice. Which self are you talking about? We have so many selves that are operating in our, in, inside of us. There's so many, so many different selves, so many different selves who have like conflicting wants. Yeah, and, and it depends what kind of hierarchy you're subscribing to. Like I remember uh, about a year or maybe two years ago, I tweeted something, it was like a, the normal sort of thing I would tweet for the past decade or so. And someone who I really admire was like, what the hell are you talking about? What tweeted back? And I was like, oh my God, I just like embarrassed myself in front of someone I really admire. So now that person's like, voice is there every time I make a tweet and I have to like get that voice. I have to almost use frame control on that voice to get it out of my head when I, when I tweet now. 
what, what you should do, I'm going to tell you, James, this works really well, is burn their house down. That's... <laughs> That Salt the earth. Be, right. <laughs> then actions will lead to emotions, will lead to uh, beliefs. So yeah. that's, that's what will happen. Well, you guys, this has been great. I always learn so much uh, every time you're on. And the Power Bible, which not only I've read, I've read it over and over, but I wrote the goddamn forward for it. And I'm sorry I took so long writing the forward for that. It took me forever to write it. But uh, dude, you're writing your book, man. Dude, I just... It just blows my mind, James. Like, I remember, so I just want to share, like, a little story. The first time I came across James Altucher's uh, name and writing was I was in Malaysia, and I had dysentery, and I had typed in, I want to, like, die. Because <laughs> I was just, like, and I read. Really? Did I read, you find me that way? Like, I, because that, you know, I'm number, I was the number one result. <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly how I found you. And then I, I, I read a few of your things, and they resonated with me. And I got your audio book and I listened to it over and over again um, because I was in, I was going into my second year of law school and I hadn't started comedy. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And James had convinced me in, in, in a weird way to start my own business through, through the book. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to be a consultant that used behavioral economics to optimize uh, coffee shops. <laughs> But um, the, the narrative of Choose Yourself ended up helping me with comedy and doing all these other things. And then when you followed me on Quora and us meeting and all this other stuff, so it's for you to write the foreword of my first book, uh, which Brendan and I poured our hearts and soul into it. Um, I mean, I, I've said this a couple times. Uh, I really don't want to die. But if I do die, I'm happy at least I got to write this book. And I've done a lot of things in my life, finished law school, everything like that. The, the writing of that book was the most meaningful thing that I've ever done. And I've lived a great life. But um, yeah, and I, I want to thank both you guys because it wouldn't have been possible without the both of you. And I would just want to say real quick also that if Bill has to die, I'm also glad he wrote this book. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast once again and you're always welcome guests we'll have you we'll, you're definitely coming back on can i plug somebody something yeah i'm in our friend karen margolis's studio she has a breakup chorus called move forward uh not on that is going to be very great and it has this pink aesthetic that i'm using um so i just wanted to plug that send me hey can karen send me the course yeah i'll, I'll tell her to send it to you not whenever. that i'm breaking uh, up with anybody but i'd, I'd love to see it yeah Karen's a great comedian as well. So uh, say hello to her for me. And uh, you guys, once again, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. And, and the Power Bible, available in Amazons everywhere. Get it. Mm -hmm.